0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see so many smiling faces. want to welcome those that are joining us online as well. Uh, It's good to be with you guys this morning. It's been an amazing and incredible start to to the fall, the ministry around here in the fall. Uh, Every week we are seeing new faces and more faces, and it's incredible to watch. But we also recognize that things are getting a little snug around here. Um, So we're looking be looking into some ways uh, some solutions to that but in the meanwhile i want to thank you guys for being so welcoming and so hospitable to those that are coming in and making sure everybody finds a seat just ask that you would continue to provide that kind of hospitality in these coming weeks uh, as we try to navigate this season together and we'll kind of keep you guys posted as we go along through this well as we open up god's word let's pray together god we are thankful um, thankful that you have already met with us thankful for the opportunity to sing our praise and our worship back to you. And God, we are thankful for a time where we can gather our lives around your word. Um, Spirit, speak to us. Open up our eyes, open up our minds, open up our hearts to what you want to reveal to us, and then give us the courage to take those steps. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles or your phones, turn to John 13, we'll get there in just a few minutes. Um, I'm gonna set the stage for us as we dive into this. Since January, as you know, if you've been following along with us, we've been examining the story of God's redemption and the story of God's grace, and we've witnessed the ways in which he made a way where there was no way. He made a way to rescue us from the penalty of sin, and it began with this promise that he made to one man, this man named Abraham. And over the last several months, we made our way through the Old Testament. We examined some of the prophecies and some of the, the foreshadows of a coming Messiah that would come from this family line of Abraham. And in the last several weeks, we witnessed the revelation of God's promise, that when Jesus came, he came to fulfill that promise that he made thousands of years ago, that Jesus came to be the savior of the world. But along the way, during his earthly ministry and through his miracles and through his teachings Jesus also showed us the nature and the character of God as we examine his example as we examine his example and his teachings what we see is the character of God we see his compassion and his patience and his mercy and his forgiveness and his desire to redeem and to restore what's broken and now as we dive into this passage we're only about 24 hours away from Jesus' crucifixion We're gonna be in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples as they take the Last Supper together. And as you read some of the other gospel accounts, some of the other writers, they spend more time talking about the elements of that dinner. But John does something a little bit different. John focuses more of his time on what Jesus said. And he gives us kind of this behind-the-scenes look at the last evening that Jesus had with his disciples. Jesus is about to leave this earth, and he knows the significance of this moment and he leaves his disciples with one last lesson. He looked them in the eye and he said, here's the thing that you need to know in order to live out the abundant life that I have for you. And he starts out not so much by what he says, but instead by what he does. It begins in verse one. It says, it was just before the Passover feast. So for 1500 years, the Jewish people every single year would sit down and they would celebrate a Passover meal. And it was a time for them to look back and to remember and to recall the faithfulness of God who led them out of bondage and out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to to freedom, brought them to freedom in a promised land. But it it was not just a looking back, it was also a looking ahead, that there was a foreshadowed. that there were some elements of the Passover that caused them to look ahead for the one, for the Messiah who would be the fulfillment of God's promise, that would bring the ultimate freedom that they desired in their life. And so all of Israel's history pointed to this moment, pointed to these next couple of days. And when the disciples go up in the upper room, they have no clue. They thought that they were just having the normal Passover meal. But Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave, for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he showed them the full extent of his love. Jesus knew that his time was short. If that was you, if you knew that your time was short, if you knew that you only had days or months to live, what would you do? For a lot of people, it becomes, I wanna accomplish these, this bucket list. You want to I wanna go skydiving. I wanna go Rocky Mountain climbing. I wanna ride a bull named Fu Manchu. Like, <laughs> a lot of people had these like buckets, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus, knowing that his time with his disciples was short, He didn't think of himself. For him, his bucket list was he wanted these guys to know how much he loved them. He wanted them to know the full extent of his love. We we use the word love in our language to to just uh, relate to how we feel about something. I, I love pizza, I love my dog, I love watching football. But in scripture, love is much more than a feeling, it's an action. Love is always demonstrated and shown. That's what Jesus wants to do here. He wants them to know how much He loves them, and He's going to demonstrate this. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power, and that He had come from God, and that He was returning to God. And He came back one. Here, I will just read this. Uh, uh, God had put all things under his power and he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So it was custom in that day that everyone would take a daily bath, that they would bathe in the morning, but then they'd walk around on these dusty, dirty streets all day And so when you came into somebody's house, there would be a little basin of water and there would be a pitcher and there would be a towel that was there. And one of the servants of the household would pour the water over their feet and then use the towel to dry them off. It was done every time that you walked into a house. It was one of the menial tasks of the day. And and if a servant wasn't there, then somebody in the the dinner party would volunteer to do that. It was done every day in the disciples' lives. They, They saw this done every day. It wasn't anything new. This was a daily experience, that somebody had to wash the feet. But it was the dirty job that no one wanted to do. Partly because feet are just gross. And partly because there was a little bit of a social pecking order, even in the lives of servants. And this was the most menial, this was the lowest task. And John tells us that Jesus is having this traditional Passover meal with his closest friends. And everything's been arranged. The meal was prepared and sitting at the table, but when they walk in the room, there's no servant. There's no servant there to wash their feet. Maybe it was an oversight on the part of the host who had set this up, or maybe the guy just didn't show. But we don't know exactly why why it happened, but it's clear that it creates some tension in the room. It creates some tension between the disciples about who it was that was actually going to step up and do this now that there was no servant. And I can kind of see the disciples, John's going, Well, it can't be me. I mean, I'm the one that Jesus loves. I'm in the inner circle, and Peter's going, well, it can't be me either. I'm the guy that walked on water, so it has to be one of you other guys. And so there's this tension-filled few minutes where everyone is just looking at each other and waiting on them to do something. It kind of reminds me, like, in the middle of the night when the baby starts crying, and both of you pretend like you don't hear it, and you're just waiting for the other person to do it. Well, this goes on for some time. And John tells us um, that the evening meal was already starting to be served. So each of these guys dug their feet in, dug their heels in. They said, I'm fine eating with dirty feet. If you guys are, just bring out the food. I'd rather eat with your nasty feet in my face than be the one that has to wash everyone's feet. So here are all the disciples that are silently or maybe out loud arguing about whose job it is. And Jesus walks in the room and he sees proud hearts, and he sees dirty feet. And John reminds us that, that Jesus knows his power. He knows that the authority that the Father had given him, he knows his purpose. He knows that his mission tomorrow will take him to the cross, and he knows his position. He knows his identity. He knows that after his mission's accomplished, that he's returning to the Father in a seat of glory. And knowing all of this, Knowing that he has all the power and the purpose and the position, what does he do? Jesus gets up from the table. He puts on the servant's towel and he begins to wash their feet. I heard one pastor frame this passage with this question. What do you do when it dawns on you that you are the most powerful person in the room? What do you do when it dawns on you that you are the most powerful person in the room and at some point in your life, you will be in a place of authority. You'll be in a place of power. Maybe you're the boss at work or maybe you're a parent or maybe you're a teacher or maybe you're the president of the Homeowners Association or maybe you're just in charge of the pickup line at school. But at some point, you will be in a position of power. And what do you do when you are the most powerful person in the room? Do you find yourself saying, because I said so? Do you find yourself pointing to the position that you have in the organization? I can tell you how I tend to respond. I, I'm really good with it as long as everyone's agreeing with me. But, but the moment there is some disrespect or I feel like there's some disrespect or the moment someone questions what I'm doing, I can get bent out of shape. I can kinda of get bowed up and I can, my face and my demeanor and my attitude all changes. But here's Jesus knowing that he is the almighty God. He's not just the most powerful person in the room, he's the most powerful being in the universe. And he doesn't bow up, he bends down and he serves. He humbles himself and he takes the lowest role imaginable. That night he reminds the disciples that greatness in his kingdom is measured by the yardstick of service, not status. Well, you can imagine as Jesus starts to do this, that there's just this awkward silence that fills the room. And everyone is trying to figure out what's going on, except for one guy, Peter. Peter, who can't seem to help himself, but to say something every time that there's a little bit of silence. In verse six, it says that he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing. But later, you will understand. And so there's this typical Peter moment that that he has this knack of speaking without thinking and Jesus stops him and says, hold on a second. Let me explain something to you. And you would think at that point that 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 would be enough of a, a sign for Peter to stop, but not so much with him. Peter powers through and he says, no, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. And so there's this double meaning that that Jesus is trying to portray here. He, He uses this physical cleaning to make a spiritual application. He's saying to us as we read this that, that your soul only needs one bath. You need to only be saved one time. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, then you are clean. That, that you are justified with God. That, that from God's perspective, the cause of the blood of Jesus, it's as if I'd never sinned. That, that the final payment, the full payment has been paid. That's the bath that Jesus is talking about. That if we have placed our faith in him, then we are cleansed once and for all. But just like their feet, as we walk through this life, we will still sin and we will still accumulate the dirt of sin and the brokenness of sin in our lives. And so we need to daily come to him and be cleansed by the forgiveness of Jesus on a daily basis. That, that's the part of daily confession and repentance in the life of a believer. That as we come to God, that through the reliance on the Holy Spirit that we are sanctified. That we are cleansed and we are made more mature as we go through this life. After Jesus explains this to them, he goes on and proceeds to wash every one of the disciples' feet. And think about who is in the room and think about who is at the table. Judas is there. And Judas is just about to betray him. And Thomas is there. And Thomas will struggle with doubt and he will doubt him. And Peter is there. And in just a few hours, Peter's going to deny him. And the rest of the guys in the room will desert him. As soon as he gets um, arrested, he, they flee into the woods. And yet Jesus washes the feet of the doubter and the feet of the denier and the deserter and the betrayer. What an amazing picture of Jesus's love, the full extent of his love. It goes on in verse 12. It says, when he had finished washing their feet, He put on his clothes and returned to his place. What's missing here? No one has washed Jesus' feet. Not one of the 12 interrupted what Jesus was doing and saying, Jesus, you shouldn't be doing that. That that should be me, let let me wash your feet. These guys are still not clued in to what Jesus is trying to teach them. It goes on, He says, do you understand what I've done for you? Jesus asked them, "You, you call me teacher and Lord, And rightly so, for that is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. There was this phrase that that the first century Jewish people would, would use to describe someone who was following a rabbi. They would say that the goal of following him would be that you are covered in the dust of your rabbi. Meaning that you are following him so closely that the dust from his sandals would fill up your garments. And it was this way of describing that your life would mimic his walk so much that people would be unable to tell the difference between you and him. And the goal was not just to do what he did, that it was actually to become who he was. And Jesus is saying to them in this last interaction with them, follow me. Follow my example. I want you to, to not just serve, but I want you to become a servant. Which, did you ever think, why did Jesus wash their feet? Why did he choose to do that? I think one reason was their proud hearts. When he walked in and saw that none of them had this humility to do what, he was, what needed to be done. He wanted to teach them a lesson and to show them what pride can do in their life and how it can be divisive in their life. But don't miss the obvious. The other reason that he washed their feet was because they had dirty feet. That, that there was simply a need that needed to be met. That they're about to have this Passover meal together and Jesus didn't want them to do that with dirty feet. And, and no one else had done it. So Jesus simply said, there's a need. I can do it, and so I will. Scrubbing these guys' dirty feet was, was love made practical. Here is God in the flesh meeting a real need, and that says something to me about the kind of life that Jesus wants me to have. I, he couldn't have been any clearer. Some of the last words that Jesus says to his disciples, to his followers, is, is I'm calling my followers to take up the towel. I I want my followers to be willing to do what what normal pride-filled people won't do, but they will refuse to do. I want this kind of love. I want this kind of, of servanthood to be the distinctive characteristic of the people who bear my name, of the people who follow me. Jesus will go on in just a few verses later and says, The people will know that you are my disciples when you love one another, when you serve one another like I have just shown you. Verse 17 says, and now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And Jesus says, towel bearers, servants, those who serve people in practical ways will become recipients of God's blessing in their lives. So so what is this kind of blessing that Jesus is referring to? I think what he wants us to understand is that that when we serve people, God changes lives. And oftentimes, the first life that he changes is ours. That that we get the thrill of being used by God to make a difference in the world around us. But equally important is that when we serve, that, that we align our lives, we align our actions and our attitudes with the heart and the character and the nature of Jesus, and our lives are changed. That there is a blessing in the obedience of serving one another because it's in that moment that we are the most like Jesus. Jesus leveraged his his power to serve those who didn't deserve it. And then he turns around and he says that we would be blessed when we do the same thing. So, So, what does that look like for us today? What does it mean to, to wash people's feet today? What does it mean to, to be a servant in our day? How do we apply this in our lives? And I wanna get, get, get as practical as, as, as I can and give some, some real world advice as we try to live this uh, example that, that Jesus gave us. The, the first thing, if you're taking notes, is that we do it, that we serve out of a love for people. That, that was Jesus's attitude, that, that he came so that they would know, he did this so that they would know the full extent of, of his love, and it may sound simple to say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, you, you just love people. That, that servants love people." But that's not necessarily the first thing that comes to mind as we think about the life of a servant. We, we tend to think of it as something that they have to do. That's what they get paid to do. That, that's uh, the duty that they have. That they're forced to do it. And, it, and that's the thing: is that, that without love, serving just feels like like duty. It feels like drudgery, and it gets old after a while. And it can cause us to grow bitter after a while. And that's not what Jesus has called us to do. He, he said that it should be a blessing, that it should bring joy into our lives to serve other people. And he said that the world will notice and the world will be changed by true servants who love people. That, that love is what makes the difference. So, so when we serve, what we're doing is what we're, we're seeing them as God sees them, that we see the people around us the way that he does, that they are, they're image bearers of his and they have a need. And love acts. Love meets the needs of the people around us. This is how Paul describes it in Philippians 2. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or being conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul says, this is what servanthood looks like. This is what love looks like. It requires this mental shift, this mental attitude that we embrace what it means to be humble. And humility reminds us that that we are to go low. It literally means to bend down or to stoop down. Real servants embrace this identity of going down below and meeting the needs of those around us. And it also means that we go last. Paul reminds us that that we are to value others' needs above our own. That the starting point for happiness, the starting point for the abundant and joy-filled life that Jesus wants for us, is shifting the focus away from ourselves so that we can see the world around us and meet the needs of others. And that's difficult to do because we all have responsibilities in this life. And we can get really busy and we can get almost uh, preoccupied with with just our own little worlds and we can neglect the needs of the world around us. I think that's why it's important for us to to make it a habit in our lives to hit the pause button, to, to pick our heads up from the busyness of life and take notice. There are needs all around us, and what we need to be reminded is when we see those, we need to elevate some of those above our own. Jesus' love noticed a need. It noticed the dirty feet of the disciples, and he simply said, I see it, I see the need, and I can do something about it, and so I will. What would that look like in your life if you adopted that same kind of attitude that you let love prompt you to look around and see a need and meet it. The second thing that we can draw from this is that we do it for everyone, that we serve everyone. As you read through scripture over and over again, Jesus says, here are the people that you're to love. The great commandment says that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. And then Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount and says, and you're also to love your enemies. We are to love everyone. And almost everyone is not everyone. And what that means for me as I seek to, to follow Jesus' command to love and serve everyone is that I need to focus my attention on the ones that I want to exclude from that. I need to focus my attention on the ones that, that are left out of my service and my love, that the ones that I want to make an exception to the rule for. It's easy to love and to serve the people in our lives that, that we like and that we love and that we feel like deserve it. But when there's someone that we think doesn't deserve it, that's a much harder thing for us to do. And That's why Jesus set this example for us. Jesus served the one that would betray him. And he says, I have set an example for you. I have set an example for me to follow. And it's precisely those that are the hardest to love that are the greatest acts of, of service, that the greatest acts of love. That's when my obedience to Jesus is the greatest. And I know it's a hard thing to ask, which is why it's helpful to remind ourselves that we're not just serving them, but we also do it for Jesus. Again, I think it's really hard as we all have some people that are coming into our minds, those that that we have a hard time loving, those that we feel like don't deserve um, our love or our honor, our respect. But if I remember that I am doing it for Jesus and not just for them, that makes a big difference. I remember when I was uh, coming out of high school and going to college, one of the jobs that I had was I, I worked at a, at a hardware store. Um, and I didn't know a whole lot about much of anything at that point, but I did know the number one rule of retail, and that was that the customer is always right. No matter what, the customer is always right. And there was one day when this guy came in and he was just in one of those moods, super foul, just mad at the world, and mad at me, frustrated that I wasn't going fast enough, was yelling at me and, and cussing at me, and everything in me wanted to fire back at him. But I didn't. I, I bit my tongue, I kept my cool, and I even thanked him for his service as he was leaving because I knew, that my boss knew, that the number one rule was the customer is always right. Here's the thing, if I could do that for my boss, if I could serve someone that I didn't really wanna serve, if I could do that for a boss and a paycheck, Why can't I do it for Jesus now? The the key for me is to understand and to recognize that, that my serving other people is not just for them. Ultimately, I'm doing it to serve Jesus. Jesus said that the world is watching and that they will know that you are my followers by how you love other people. There's all the difference in the world for me between me deciding whether or not you deserve it, versus looking at the role that Jesus has given me as an ambassador of his, who has been given an assignment to to represent him in such a way that people would see my actions and know that I'm a follower of his. um, Paul says in Colossians three, he says, "'Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, "'do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus.'" that I recognize that I'm his ambassador, that I am his representative to the world around me. And when I do it for Jesus, it becomes a lot easier to serve those that are hard to love. The fourth thing to be reminded of is don't keep score. If you keep track in your mind of all the things that you have done and expecting something in return, expecting somebody that they actually owe you because of it, you're gonna come out on the wrong side of this. Here's what I found in my own life. Anytime I get upset because I didn't get what I felt like was the appropriate appreciation or applause or praise, it's a sign that I didn't really do it for Jesus. It's a sign that I served so that I would be recognized. It's a sign that I served so that I could be praised in some way. Servanthood, as Jesus illustrated it, is serving others and expecting nothing in return. And that is not an easy thing to do. Because our pride and our ego just keep rearing their head up. And if we're not careful, and if we're not mindful of that tendency in our lives, then what will happen is we'll start keeping score in our minds, and we'll store up these slights in our head that they didn't notice me. No one thanked me. And if you start keeping score in that way, it only leads to two things. It leads to bitterness, or it leads to self-righteousness. And it's, it's a sign when those things start creeping up that, that maybe I'm not serving with the proper motivation. Maybe I'm not really serving for Jesus. It's a sign maybe that I need to go back to Jesus and say, I need your help in this. My ego is getting wounded right now and I, I need some help in making sure that I'm not keeping score so that I can serve you and serve others. And then the last thing is don't let pride keep others from serving you. That These first four are all about what does it look like for us to serve others and this one is kind of the flip side of that because some of us have a hard time being on the receiving end of others serving us we're kind of like peter and we refuse the service of other people no i'm good but thanks for the offer but i'm good and and that's really just a false humility and it's really a subtle form of pride in our lives because what we're really saying is, I don't need you. I, I can handle this on my own. And we are robbing them of the opportunity to, to live out Jesus' command. That Jesus says we are to serve others, but if the other person refuses, then we're not able to live that out. You see, we are called to live a life of serving others, but also being served. We're called... To love others, but also to be loved. We're called to know others and to also be fully known by others. We need to serve. We need it for our own lives, our own souls. And maybe more importantly, that the world needs us to serve. The outside world needs followers of Jesus to to embrace this. To, to understand that, that we are not just consumers, that we are contributors, that we are called to, to, to make a difference in the world around us, that we're to pick up our t- pick up our towel and to, and to follow Jesus' example and say, I see a need. I can meet it, so I will. This one's mine. This is what servanthood looks like. I see a need and I can meet it, so I'm gonna do it. And I'm not gonna bow up and, and think that this is beneath me and I'm not going to make excuses. I'm not going to say somebody else will get this or I'm too busy to do this. And I'm going to bow down. I am going to bend down. I'm going to stoop down and I'm going to serve. I'm going to go low. I'm going to take up humility. I'm going to go last. I'm going to elevate their need above my own because I'm a servant. Serving is not just what we do. Servant, Hood is what we become. We are called to become servants. And imagine what could happen if we actually did that. Imagine what would happen in your families if servanthood ruled in your families. Imagine what our communities would look like. Imagine what your workplace would look like. Imagine what your school would look like. If we, those that claim to be followers of Jesus, actually followed his example, the example that set for us and serve the people around us. And remember what Jesus said. He says, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. So let's go out and find some feet to wash this week. Not literally, that's kind of a, <laughs> a little bit gross, but what, what would it, But find a way this week to put this in the application. Put, put it a reminder in your phone daily. I'm gonna find a way to see a need and to meet it. What is one thing that you can do today? Before you go to bed, what's one thing you can do today to serve your families? What's something that you can do this week to serve a coworker? Uh, maybe for you the application is, you know what, I, I need to find a way to serve on a weekly basis or, or a, a, a way around here in the church that I wanna serve the body of Christ in some way. But whatever it is, do it for Jesus and see what he does for you after you do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Um, Thank you again for just the reminder of your character, that you are a God who meets our needs and you have met our deepest need. Jesus, when you went to the cross and you defeated sin and then defeated death after you rose from the grave, you met my deepest need. And in response to that, I want to serve you by serving others. God, open up our eyes. There are needs all around us. And and give us the boldness and the courage and the tenacity to look and say, I see that need, I can meet it and so I will. Especially those, I think especially those that maybe we don't wanna serve. That's a reminder in our hearts that we need to let go of something so that we can serve them well. Jesus, thank you for the example and your compassion and your love and your mercy and your grace. Help us to follow in your footsteps so that we look more and more like you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. A quick reminder, if you guys are interested in baptism or if your kids are, right after the service in the Next Steps room out here. Uh, Blair will be out there. Otherwise, you can make your way uh, over into the kids' area for your kids. See you next week.